Good afternoon. I'm Franklin, and this is the Berkeley Rock Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, implants, chaos, and bacteria. In addition, we'll be joined by Professor Tom Morris, who will discuss the philosophy of business. Also, we'll find out what mosquito fish are. So stay tuned for all of this, plus the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week, coming right up here on the Berkeley Grok Science Show. Back to Berkeley Rocks. I'm Frank Ling. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How are you doing, Frank? I'm mystified. <laughs> I'm perplexed. I'm confounded. I'm well, confabulated. Was this after watching the Da Vinci Code? <laughs> you know, that was so long ago, I've forgotten it. <laughs> yeah, I still haven't counted. Probably a good thing. I think. <laughs> confounded by how they could spend so much money and make something so utterly boring. <laughs> that Jesus Christ actually had a family. Fun, but laughable. <laughs> <laughs> Well, speaking of Da Vinci, the Mona Lisa is uh, still a mystery, especially her smile. That she's smiling at all? Is she smiling? So a group of researchers at the uh, University of Illinois scanned the painting and then ran it over some uh, emotion recognition software to see what her emotional state was. And of course, there's six basic emotions, happiness, surprise, anger, disgust, fear, and sadness. And from this program, she seems to be 83% happy, 9% disgusted, 6% fearful, 2% angry, and there was no surprise. I'm registered about 300% surprise because how can you even quantify these measures, right? I mean, this experiment may seem kind of childlike, but it does open a whole range of possibilities to understand emotional recognition and to develop software for doing that. Facial recognition has already had a lot of advances, but emotional recognition is just fledgling field right now. There's probably other things that go into it just besides the demeanor of the face that also needs to be taken into account. By the timbre of my voice, I will register my skepticism. <laughs> you look skeptical. My smile betrays my skepticism. <laughs> so if anyone wants to read this, there's a very nice summary in the April 17th edition of Chemical and Engineering. Well, I was wondering if the Mona Lisa actually had an ulcer. I don't know, but I thought she had a broken jaw. <laughs> Man, that Leonardo, he was one <laughs> mean character, wasn't he? <laughs> he knew how to treat his models. Well, certainly a broken jaw could give you an ulcer. And one of the questions that researchers have been interested in was exactly how can you prevent the uh, deleterious effects of ulcers? And apparently what happens is during the stress process, the wall lining of your intestine, for example, or your stomach becomes somewhat permeable, mm. allowing the natural bacteria that are in your stomach to escape and cause a little bit of inflammation. Oh, I see. So researchers were wondering if they could actually use probiotic bacteria to actually reduce that risk. Mm -hmm. So a group led by Mary Perdue of McMaster University in Hamilton has used two particular commercially available strains called Lactobacillus helveticus and Lactobacillus rhamnosus. And they found that by having rats take these probiotic bacteria, they're able to reduce the inflammation from stress responses. So eat a little yogurt then, huh? <laughs> Possibly, yeah. That's the uh, recommendation. They're not really sure exactly what the mechanism is. They suggest that it may help increase intestinal cells production of mucose or immune system proteins called immunoglobins, but they're not willing to make too big a jump as to what's uh, going on at the moment. All they know is that the probiotics do seem to help. 
wasn't there some study that carried out that if you have lab rats that were raised in a completely sterile environment, that is like there was no trace of even probiotic bacteria. Mm-hmm. They were actually more susceptible to regular uh, environmentally. Uh, yeah, that's not surprising. I'm sure the Mona Lisa might be surprised, but <laughs> <laughs> that certainly you need these commensal bacteria right. in order to uh, have a healthy intestine. Symbiotic, man. So this is actually research that was featured in a recent edition of Science News. So, Charles, how are your breast implants doing? They're leaking, I think. A little bit of silicon? Uh, well, mine were filled with grape jello, so I'm actually enjoying it. But <laughs> I'm getting supplements, Yeah, right? but I'm getting an insulin rush because of all the sugar. So. <laughs> how about platinum? I haven't tried filling them with platinum yet. So it turns out the silicons that's been conventionally used for these implants contain certain species of platinum, and they seem to accumulate in uh, many of the women who've actually uh, had these implants. Uh, so they leak out, and where do they accumulate? In the tissues of your body. But what's disturbing about this is that even after the implants have been removed, traces of it just remain on it forever. Yeah, well, I imagine that there's not really good natural mechanisms in the body for removing platinum. Scavenging it, right? Yeah. So this does raise a lot of concerns about uh, implants in general. And these platinum compounds are some of the catalysts that they use for the uh, polymerization process to make the silicone. And that gets embedded. Presumably, uh, scientists had already thought that it would remain in silicon, but Apparently, it actually diffuses hmm. into the body and just accumulates there. Uh, is there any health risks being in the body? There is. It could have various toxicological effects, including neurotoxicity, carcinogenicity, and other nasty things you don't want to know. Right. Well, so the top of the rogues gallery there. <laughs> Amazing. It's a small price to pay. For beauty, right? And I was thinking of platinum male enhancement. <laughs> All uh, natural. <laughs> so if anyone's uh, interested, it's in the April 1st edition of Analytical Chemistry. <laughs> All right, and finally, do you have a little chaos in your life? Isn't that the natural order of things? I think all things but to entropy, uh-huh. disorder. Chaos might actually help nuclear reactors. Nuclear reactions going randomly or something? Well, actually, it's regarding the containment field for fusion reactors. Oh, okay. So one of the key problems with fusion reactors is you're using plasmas of hydrogen gas. Right. And those things can melt the wall uh-huh. of any reactor. So what they do is they contain it in an electrical field. But the problem is the fields can be weak in certain spots, and at those spots, the plasma can escape uh-huh. and melt parts of the reactor at those joints. So that's been a trick with trying to engineer, actually, fusion reactors. But what a group of researchers have found was led by Todd Evans, a physicist at General Atomics in San Diego. If you put a little static into these magnetic fields, it winds up actually creating little leaks every now and then that mm. kind of release the pressure. So you don't have like massive bursts, you have a lot of mini bursts coming out. Of plasma. Of plasma. And it's diffused around the field. Right. So it winds up actually helping contain the plasma even more. Wow. That's pretty clever, actually. Brilliant people doing brilliant things. And we're just reporting about it. (laughs) (laughs) It's very fascinating work and could potentially be implemented later on, perhaps even in the International Thermonuclear Experimental Reactor, which is being built right now. Reported in a recent edition of uh, Nature. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. You are listening to the Berkeley Grox Science Show. Well, coming up next, we'll be talking with Professor Tom Morris about the philosophy of business. So stay tuned.
All right, welcome back to the Grok Science Show. Well, stories of corporate malfeasance are all too common nowadays. From egregious offenders like WorldCom and Enron to corporations like United Airlines raiding the pension fund while still giving huge bonuses to their corporate officers. This often leads many to wonder whether ethics, morality, and even common decency have a place in the dog-eat-dog world of business. Well, joins today on the Grok Science Show to discuss this issue is Professor Tom Morris. Professor Morris was a professor of philosophy at Notre Dame for over 15 years. He is now the chairman of the Morris Institute for Human Values in Wilmington, North Carolina. He's also the author of several best-selling books, including True Success and If Aristotle Ran General Motors. His new book, If Harry Potter Ran General Electric, continues the exploration of philosophical values in the business culture. Professor Morris, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Hey, it's great to be with you, Charles. Uh, well, certainly our pleasure. I mean, you've written a very fascinating book, uh, <laughs> The Intersection of Philosophy and Business. Yeah, it's, a, it's really a wild combination. Isn't it? You throw Harry Potter in there, you never know what's going to happen next. <laughs> right, well, certainly uh, bound to be a bestseller, at least. It looks like it so far. I just heard from Doubleday today that they're having to reprint, go to a second printing already, and it's just been out for 24 hours. It's great. a good sign. Great. Congratulations. Well, I'm curious. I mean, we're sort of inundated by stories of corporate misdoings. Um, Have corporate leaders just chucked the whole idea of philosophical values out the window? You know, I think that quite a few did a few years ago. You know, I I think with the the whole dot-com phenomenon and everybody getting so excited and so many young guys just creating tremendous businesses kind of out of nowhere all of a sudden, and a a lot of people in traditional industries were thinking, wait a minute, you know, there are all these guys out there, uh, especially in your neck of the woods, you know, (laughs) becoming multimillionaires overnight, and hey, where's my piece of the action? And people got really frustrated. There was kind of a gold rush mentality. You know, I'm getting left out of this. You know, how can how can I create my own empire and what I do? And people were starting to, well, I guess the euphemism is get creative. They, that's one of the problems with Enron, all this creative business accounting. I think a lot of people just lost their bearings. And, and you had sort of a temporary insanity kind of spread around a lot of the business world where people had lost their real sense of what ethics is all about. It's almost like... We had a widespread viewpoint for quite a few years that ethics is really just about staying out of trouble. Mm -hmm. And if you hold that view of ethics, you can easily accept any counterfeit of real ethics that you think will also serve the same end, namely keeping you out of trouble, Mm. whether it's uh, being very deceptive, uh, having extremely complex business structures that nobody can really see through. In my books, I try to bring people back to the ancient view, both in the Greek philosophers and across cultures. You can find this in Confucius and Lao Tzu. I do a lot of my work out of the Aristotelian tradition, where they saw ethics as not a way of staying out of trouble, but a way of creating strength. And if you view ethics that way, you understand how ethical business creates strong relationships, strong organizations. And if you have that kind of view of ethics, you're not tempted so much to kind of set it aside for temporary gain. You really understand that there are foundations for sustainable excellence that only ethics can provide us. You know, we've been, the human experiment has been going on for quite a long time now, and we see what unravels trust and what helps people work together. So I've seen in the Harry Potter stories just incredible new ways of framing those situations and those questions about ethics in the business world, and that's why I wrote the new book. I see. I mean, actually, your first book was uh, If Aristotle Ran General Motors. That's right. <laughs> right? And it was kind of interesting. It was, it was divided into four parts. You had truth, beauty, goodness, and unity. I'm curious what are the relevance of each of those in business? 
Well, you know, I, I believe that everybody, from, from the time you get up in the morning to the time you go to bed at night, you have four dimensions of your experience of the world. You have an intellectual dimension that needs truth. You have an aesthetic dimension that needs beauty. You have a moral dimension. You need to experience goodness, kindness, you know, fairness. And you have a you have a spiritual dimension, which I understand in a very general, universal way. You need a sense of connectedness. You need you need to to feel a sense of unity, not only within yourself, but between yourself and other people, and between people in the environment. And, and I believe truth, beauty, goodness, and unity are kind of four foundations for not only sustainable excellence in any business endeavor, but there are four foundations for a sense of happiness and fulfillment in what you're doing. If we neglect or disregard any one of those four things, there are going to be negative consequences in our lives. So in that book, if Aristotle ran General Motors, I tried to help people see how these four transcendentals, they call them, how these four things, truth, beauty, goodness, and unity, how they function in practical ways in, in organizations, in businesses, in people's lives. And I've actually had business people tell me they quit their job after reading my book because they realized they were working in an environment that did not support what they need as human beings to flourish. I've even had a business people tell me it helped them focus on how to run their companies. And one guy even had those four things inscribed inside his wedding ring when he got married <laughs> to remind himself it's not just the relationships at work, but it's our relationships with our friends and with our spouses. Truth, beauty, goodness, and unity, that just keeps it going. It makes it good. Right, right. Well, I mean, much much had happened in, in business since the late 90s when that book was put yeah. out. I mean, were you surprised or maybe disheartened yeah. a little bit by some of the more recent corporate episodes? Yeah, I really was. In fact, it, a lot of people have said to me, I've gotten a ton of emails just in the last two or three years of people saying, hey, your book in 1997, if Aristotle ran General Motors, that was a way ahead of its time because mm-hmm. a lot of people read that book at the time and thought, oh, that's interesting, but they didn't really see how important it was. But now we're seeing what happens when you forget that framework of ideas, when you operate in the absence of those things. And, you know, it's just, it's, it's been a disaster. There's a, a lot of wreckage throughout the corporate world, and a lot of people have suffered because of that. So I've had people tell me they're starting to teach that book in business schools. Mm-hmm. They're, they're starting to, you know, people started asking me, to give speeches on the topic again after a few years of, of people sort of not seeming to be that interested in the ethical foundations for success. Now, all of a sudden, there's a swing back. And that's, that's the good thing about this, Charles. I mean, I believe, you know, human life is kind of a pendulum. You know, it swings from one extreme to the other. And the good news is, having seen the consequences of unethical leadership, mm-hmm. unethical behavior, people are wanting to know, okay, what's the alternative? And then you can bring out Plato and Aristotle and Confucius and Lao Tzu. And now I can bring out Harry Potter and people saying, Harry Potter? But, you know, J.K. Rowling is a very philosophical soul. She's really plugged into the great wisdom traditions. And in these immensely popular books, she's conveyed a tremendous amount of philosophy for life and philosophy for business. So that's why I wrote the book of Harry Potter and General Electric. It's kind of like a follow-up to the Aristotle book that really helps people to see deeply the things we really need to succeed in our lives and in our businesses. What can we learn from these characters, in particular, say, Harry Potter? Well, first of all, Harry, he has this great uh, experience of being around Dumbledore. Albus Dumbledore is kind of the Aristotelian figure (laughs) in the book, you know? He embodies all Aristotle's virtues, you know, courage, temperance, pride, friendliness, truthfulness, justice, all this stuff, wittiness. You know, you can go down Aristotle's list of the virtues, and you pretty much got a, a profile of Dumbledore. Dumbledore is a, a mentor to Harry Potter. 
And we see in that master-apprentice relationship how Harry's learning in so many ways from Dumbledore. And sometimes he rebels, and sometimes he's angry, but he, he's picking up so many things from just hanging around Dumbledore and being in his sphere of influence. And Harry Potter himself is developing all these tremendous qualities. Take his courage, for example. I devoted a whole chapter of the book to the neglected virtue of courage. In the business world, we forget how important courage is. You're not going to tell the truth when it's difficult without some courage. You're not going to be able to make a suggestion when you think you know heads are going to roll unless you, unless you can muster courage. Harry is this little guy who is confronted by the greatest dangers of his age, and he always manages to step up and do the right thing. One thing that fascinated me about the books, J.K. Rowling describes every other character's fearfulness in terms of external manifestations. He turned white. He was shaking. He was trembling. Uh, he was stuttering. She always describes Harry's from the inside, you know, his inside squirming, his chest tightening up, his throat tightening, his head pounding. It's like she wants us to understand viscerally how f- afraid he really is because that helps us to appreciate what it means when he overcomes this fear and does the right thing. So Harry, to me, is this great example of kind of a, a work in progress, a, a Aristotelian becoming. You know, right. he, he's, he starts off telling all kinds of lies, you know, not, taking truth very loosely, uh, not taking it seriously. But as the years go on, he starts to understand friendship and loyalty and honor and all kinds of things. Right, and as you mentioned as well, uh, Dumbledore being the role model is the Aristotelian figure. I mean, is that what business leaders should aspire to? Yeah, absolutely right. In fact, that's what knocked me out when I started reading the Potter books only about three years ago. I mean, I didn't have little kids. I hadn't read any of the books, (laughs) but two guys were putting together a book called uh, Harry Potter and Philosophy, and they wanted me to write the lead essay. And I said, well, guys, I haven't haven't read any of the books yet. And they said, oh, Tom, you got to read these books. You know, you're going to love them. So I said, okay, as a favor to these guys, I started reading the first Harry Potter book. In no time at all, I'd read every book six times. And I said, you know what, guys? The books aren't about magic at all. They're about the classic virtues. They're about the great wisdom of the ages. And and that's why I got so excited. I couldn't stop. I I wrote the article for their book, and I couldn't stop writing. Pretty soon I had like 300 pages, and I said, oh, I've got a book here. (laughs) This is the stuff business leaders need to hear. And the early feedback on my book from the chairman and CEO of Mattel there in California, from the chairman and CEO of Verizon, from the CFO at Citigroup, from all these tremendously highly placed corporate executives, they're all just raving Mm -hmm. about the wisdom I've found in the Harry Potter books, about how that puts fresh perspectives and frameworks around issues they face all the time, and they've really found it useful. So, you know, I'm hoping the book will do a lot of good for people. I'm wondering, what are some of the main messages that you would like to hammer home to some of the uh, CEOs in America today? Well, lesson number one is this. You can't be a good leader mm-hmm. without first being a good person. Mm-hmm. I think Dumbledore is a great example of that. And truth is the foundation for trust. And without trust in any group, bad things always happen. We don't appreciate enough how important truth and trust are in any organization because ultimately relationships rule the world. Partnerships, collaborations make things happen. We talk about Harry and how he always saves the day, and he does, but it's always through the help of uh, Hermione and Ron, Hagrid, and all kinds of other people, uh, Dumbledore. Relationships really make things happen, and without ethical foundations, you can't have good relationships. 
I, I believe that the Harry Potter stories show us how a good leader is always teaching. You know, a Dumbledore is always teaching Harry. And then Harry kind of becomes the natural leader for his classmates, and he's always teaching them in various ways. One of the most important messages in the book is when Dumbledore says to Harry, it's our choices, Harry, that show mm -hmm. what we truly are far more than our abilities. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people have had the attitude, like, you know, the Enron, the famous Enron hiring strategy, hire the smartest guys in the room. All they were concerned about was ability. They weren't concerned about, okay, what kind of choices does this person make? What kind of character does this person have? I think the Harry Potter stories show us that leadership is really about high competence mm -hmm. and deep character. Some may argue actually the, the opposite of the side of the coin, saying that these things are nice in theory, but maybe they have really little practical relevance in, again, the doggy dog world of business. Yeah. Well, you know what? I think a bad person can mm -hmm. have flamboyant success for a while mm -hmm. in a limited domain and at the expense of what really counts. But when you really look at how the houses of cards have come tumbling down time after time after time, mm -hmm. and people have, what kind of legacy do they do they leave? You know, they're, they're in jail, they're totally shamed, they have their property taken away from them, they end up in prison couture, you know, <laughs> and they end up hated by hundreds or sometimes thousands or tens of thousands of people whose lives they've ruined. When you really depart from the ethical point of view, yeah, you can sometimes take some shortcuts and make some things happen real quick. But the, the overall long-term consequences are not very pretty at all. And, and we see that through the Harry Potter stories mm -hmm. as well. Do you think more of these values are starting to become injected now into the uh, corporate climate? Yeah, I do. Just, I mean, look at the fact that people are inviting me as a philosopher to come and give speeches to their groups. I mean, I, I'll speak to one day I'll be with 25 top executives, and the next day I'll be with 10,000 human resources people, and maybe a day after that I'm with two or 3,000 marketing people. Mm -hmm. I, you know, when I was in the classroom at Notre Dame, I did pretty esoteric philosophy. I, I never knew. I never intended to have a career being a corporate philosopher or a public philosopher. Just the fact that people are coming to me, and I don't approach people saying, hey, uh, you know, I'd like to be your philosopher. I just answer the phone. And so if you've seen, the, I don't know if it's in the, uh, the new book, or you see a list of the companies I've been a philosopher for, it's unbelievable. I mean, to me, it's a good sign that people are interested in philosophy and devoting significant resources. I mean, I've had companies hire me 50, 60 times to give talks. Companies aren't in the business of throwing away money. So that's a kind of a litmus test for the fact that they're really coming to understand. They've got to get a grip on the deeper realities of human nature and what the great philosophers have been saying for ages now if they really want to sustain the highest sort of excellence in their endeavors. Uh, well, we are running slightly out of time, but I'm just curious, maybe as a final word, how did you become interested in this whole uh, idea of the intersection between philosophy and business? It's just because people started calling me at Notre Dame. Oh. They had heard my classes were really popular. I taught about an eighth of the student body every year at Notre Dame. I had these huge philosophy classes, and, and they started asking me, you know, look, we have motivational speakers all the time who kind of say the same thing. Did the great philosophers say anything about success or ethics oh. or partnership or how to deal with change? And I would say, yeah. In the 20th century, we just talked about theoretical stuff in philosophy, but every century before then, there was a strong strain of, of practical philosophy going on, you know, and all the great thinkers. So that's how I got interested, people inviting me to come into their groups and then hearing what they were struggling with and finding that the philosophers had perspectives that people really needed. And then I would see people come alive. I mean, when you see a 1,000 people or 5,000 people who think they've heard it all, when you see them give the great philosophers a standing ovation, after about an hour you say, gee, you know, people are really responding when they see 
the real thing, when they see authentic wisdom. And that's what I try to bring people. It's not that I, I'm such a wise guy myself, but I try to be the conduit to people, all the wisdom of the ages. I, I try to bring it into people's lives in a way they can use. And it's a tremendous fun for me to see the ideas making a difference for people long term. A great impact, I think. Uh, yeah, it really, it really does. All right. Well, uh, Professor Morris, I do want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show and discussing your new book. Well, thank you so much, Charles. It's great to be with you. I hope everybody in your listening audience gets to see the book and has fun with it. All right. And you were just listening to Professor Tom Morris discussing the philosophy of business. This is the Berkeley Grok's Science Show. Well, coming up next, it's the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned. and we're ready to play our game, the Grokatron 5000. The Grokatron 5000 is, of course, our supercomputer, formerly known as Deep Blue. And today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic Muggle or Wizard. So for the following five people, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know, are they more like a muggle or a wizard in how they run their organization? Professor Morris, are you ready to play our game? I'm ready. Okay, here we go. Muggle or wizard, person number one, Martha Stewart. <laughs> you know what? Believe it or not, wizard. Really? I'm going to say Martha Stewart. Now, Martha Stewart has had her problems. Martha Stewart has made her mistakes. But if you reach back far enough in Martha Stewart's life, you see the excitement of ideas in her life. You see that she started out as a great teacher. In her early TV shows, in her early books, in her sense of trying to bring the magic into people's ordinary lives, the kind of the art of the everyday. They're, they're not, there's a great woman philosopher who does this, Alexandra Stoddard. She, uh, she started off as an interior designer, but she's really a philosopher. She writes books about the beauty of everyday life. And Martha Stewart, for all her problems and for all the fun we poke at her for various reasons, I'm going to put her in the wizard category. Okay. Okay, well, I'm sure she'll be glad to hear that. <laughs> All right, uh, number two, Donald Trump. Donald Trump has got to be the chief muggle of all <laughs> muggles. <laughs> Donald Trump would get the gold medal as a muggle. <laughs> okay. I, th I believe he's a world-class, uh, he's the record breaker. He's the Guinness Book of World Records. As, <laughs> as, as the old saying goes, when you look up muggle in the dictionary, you see the Donald's picture. <laughs> right glowing at you. <laughs> he shares some qualities with uh, an unfortunate character in the Harry Potter stories, Professor uh, Gilderoy Lockhart, who is, uh, is always preening for the camera. I won't say any more because I get a huge kick out of Donald Trump. <laughs> I, and, and he has some real business savvy. He, he has promotional savvy uh, that's a world-class level, but he's got to be muggle in chief. For right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, uh, number three, Lee Iacocca. Oh, Lee Iacocca. You know what? I'm going to put Lee Iacocca into the wizard category mm. because despite 
many mistakes he made and many things that I don't agree with. There was a time in his life when he did some pretty wizard-worthy things. Mm. He, he worked some magic that nobody thought could happen. On one or two occasions, he rose to the occasion. Now, it could be that he's of muggle parentage. <laughs> right. But that's his category. Okay. Uh, number four, Oprah Winfrey. Oprah Winfrey. Well, you know, you got to give Oprah. You got to put her in the wizard category uh-huh. because anybody who's ever to get, able to get themselves in into the position that everywhere she goes, everybody screams, yells, <laughs> screams, and claps. And I think that actually happens in the grocery store and in the drugstore and other places she goes. Everybody yells, screams, and claps, and uh, she can just mention a book and it becomes a, an absolute bestseller. You know, in fact, I think she would prove uh, her, her wizard ways uh, to the max if she would you know, mention mine very soon on her show, but. <laughs> We will put her firmly in the wizard category. All right. Well, we'll hope uh, she does make a mention of that. (laughs) (laughs) All right. And uh, finally, uh, the president of the United States, George Bush. Oh, George Bush. You know, poor George. I think he originally wanted to be a wizard. He was a tremendous wizard wannabe. (laughs) And I, I think now he'd be glad to be considered a muggle. I mean, I don't think he's made it into either of those categories. I mean, I think the muggles would vote him out at this point. I think his ratings amongst muggles have really plummeted to the point that he's being disavowed even by the muggles. But poor George, I guess that's a category we've got to put him in. Okay, just uh, in a category by himself then. He's in a category He's in a category by himself, that's right. And it's a, it's a distinctive position to be in. We won't call him the president who must not be named, but uh, <laughs> that might be going a little too far. All right. Well, Professor Morris, I do want to thank you very much for uh, joining us today on the Grok Science Show. And it was secret. a lot of fun, Charles, to talk with you and to be part of the, Gro- the famous Grokathon. <laughs> okay. Well, we certainly appreciate you sticking around. All right. You bet. All right. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. And Forrest, with the answer to last week's question of the week, well, mosquito fish are tiny little fishes that thrive in the pond and the waterways, and they eat mosquitoes, those larvas, and that's how they protect us from spreading the West Nile virus. All right, well, I just want to say for the record, I do not have relations with those mosquito fish. I plan to run again in the primaries, in particular, the Mersenne Prime. Well, do you know what the Mersenne Prime is? Well, if you do, you can email us <laughs> at grox.hotmail.com. You won't win anything, but I just might keep my hands off you. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grox, you can email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music.